From beyond the ship, he could hear another section of the waiting queue filling in, the last he hoped of the day. He settled himself as comfortably as he could. In a moment, the lecture would begin. He had to smile when he thought of one thing the recording would say. Then there it was again, the clear, trained video of the chap Stillwell. The foot scrapings and whispers of the crowd dried away, and Cliff could hear every word in spite of the great bulk of the ship lying interposed. Ladies and gentlemen, began the familiar words, the Smithsonian Institution welcomes you to its new interplanetary wing and to the marvelous exhibits at this movement before you. A slight pause. All of you must know by now something of what happened here three months ago, if indeed you did not see it for yourself in the telescreen, the voice went on. The new facts are briefly told. A little after 5 o'clock p.m. on September 16th, visitors to Washington throng the grounds outside this building in their usual numbers and no doubt with their usual thoughts. The day was warm and fair. A stream of people was leaving the main entrance of the museum just outside in the directions you are facing. This wing, of course, was not here at that time. Everyone was homeward bound, tried no doubt from hours on their feet, seeing the exhibits of the museum and visiting the many buildings on the grounds nearby. And then it happened. On the area just to your right, just as it is now, appeared the time-space traveler. It appeared in the blink of an eye. It did not come down from the sky. Dozens of witnesses swear to that. It just appeared. One moment it was not there, the next it was. It appeared on the very spot it now rests on. The people nearest the ship were stricken with panic and ran back with cries and screams. Excitement spread out over Washington in a tidal wave. Radio, television, and newspapermen rushed here at once. Police formed a wide cordon around the ship and army units appeared and trained guns and ray projectors on it. The direst calamity was feared, for it was recognized from the very beginning that this was no spaceship from anywhere in the solar system. Every child knew that only two spaceships had ever been built on Earth, and none at all on any of the other planets and satellites. And of those two, one had been destroyed when it was pulled into the sun, and the other had just been reported safely arrived on Mars. Then, the ones made here had a shell of strong aluminum alloy, while this one, as you see, is of unknown greenish metal. The ship appeared and just sat here. No one emerged, and there was no sign that it contained life of any kind. That, as much as any single thing, caused excitement to skyrocket. Who, or what, was inside? Were the visitors hostile or friendly? Where did the ship come from? How did it arrive so suddenly right on this spot without dropping from the sky? For two days the ship rested here, just as you now see it, without motion or sign that it contained life. Long before the end of that time, the scientists had explained that it was not so much a spaceship as a space-time traveler, because only such a ship would arrive as this one did, materialize. They pointed out that such a traveler, while theoretically understandable to us Earthmen, was far beyond attempt at our present state of knowledge, and that this one, activated by relativity principles, might well have come from the far corner of the universe, from a distance which light itself would require millions of years to cross. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. 
Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky. It had a one long horn and one big eye. I commit the chicken and I said, ooh, wee. It looked like a purple people eater to me. It was a one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. eater. Sure looked strange to me. But then it came down to earth and it lit in a tree. What I just read was a few paragraphs of the short story Farewell to the Master by Harry Bates, which was first published in the October 1940 issue of Astounding Science Fiction, but was most famously adapted into the classic 1951 science fiction film The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was directed by Robert Wise. Later in this episode, I'm going to be discussing that film, as well as some Godzilla films with Luke Giaconetti, as I am turning my attention away from nuclear weapons educational films and communist paranoia to the science fiction realm. It's a genre that, no pun intended, exploded through the 1950s and 1960s. Now, there were a variety of reasons for that, especially during the 1960s when you had the space race and actual missions into orbit and then the moon. But another part of the genre was exploring the possibilities and consequences of the use of nuclear weapons. And that's part of the focus of this episode, episode four of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries that is brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit and part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Tom Panneries, and in addition to my discussion of science fiction, I'll also be talking about the events of the end of the Cold War starting in June of 1990 and ending that August, as well as taking an in-depth look at the revolutions in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which are referred to as the Singing Revolution. So let's get into it, and we'll start by just doing our sort of Reading Wikipedia rundown of the events of June through August of 1990. On June 1st, U.S. President George H.W. Bush and Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev signed a treaty to end chemical weapon production and began destroying their respective stockpiles of it. About a week later, on June 8th through 9th, the Czechoslovakian parliamentary election is held. This is Czechoslovakia's first free election since 1946, and the Civic Forum wins most of the seats but fails to secure a majority. The next day, June 10th, is the first round of the Bulgarian Constitutional Assembly election, and that sees the Bulgarian Socialist Party win a majority, and the second round of voting is held on June 17th. On June 12th, the Congress of People's Deputies of the Russian Federation formally declared its sovereignty. This was the supreme government institution in the Russian Soviet uh, Socialist Republic and the Russian Federation from the 16th of May of 1990 to the 21st of September 1993. Elected on the 4th of March of 1990 for for a period of five years, This uh, was dissolved without constitutional authority by presidential decree during the Russian constitutional crisis of 1993, and it ended de facto when the Russian White House was attacked on October 4th of 93. Now, I'm not going that far into it uh, because my history will stop at the end of 1991 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but I guess it is something to say about how the road to establishing a more permanent Russian state that was not a Soviet socialist republic in the manner that we knew it 
uh, was not as easy as it might seem just kind of on paper or in a history textbook. This Congress, which was uh, again called the Congress of the People's Deputies of the Russian Federation, was important. It played an important role in some of the most important events in the history of Russia during this period, uh, just after the fall of the Soviet Union and then, you know, till about 93. It was, uh, you know, one event that played an important part in was the Declaration of Independence of Russia from the USSR in December of 91, as well as the, uh, as well as economic reforms post-Soviet Union and the rise of Boris Yeltsin, who would be the president of Russia and the next major Russian leader after Mikhail Gorbachev. This Congress had the power to pass laws by majority, and uh, then it had to be signed by the president, very much, uh, very much like the United States, except the president did not have a right to veto anything until that was established in July of 91. The Congress also held the ultimate power in Russia, that is, to the power to decide on, quote, any questions within the jurisdiction of the Russian Federation. And some of the most important powers, such as the passage of the amendment up to the Constitution, the approval of the Prime Minister of Russia and the holders of the highest public office, uh, and as well as selection of members of committees, etc., um, they were exclusive powers of by this Congress, um, and they were exercised solely by it. So it was a first step toward a more parliamentary system of government in Russia, which uh, was not entirely what was happening during the Soviet era, even though you did have the Communist Party, the Politburo, and, and various things. Uh, I believe this was more of a step toward a parliamentary democracy. On June 13th, East Germany officially starts tearing down the Berlin Wall seven months after it had been opened the previous November. If you go back to episode one, I give a detailed look at the rise, fall, and the end of the Berlin Wall, as well as the reunification of Germany, which would start happening around this time. The Communist Party of the Russian Soviet Federalist Social Republic is founded in, Mar in Moscow on June 19th. Now, this was a Republican-level branch of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in Russia, the Rus Soviet state. The Communist Party of, of Russia was founded in 90. At this point, um, it organized around 58% of the total Communist Party of the Soviet Union membership. The party was popular known as the Russian Communist Party, and politically it became the in a center for communist opponents of Gorbachev's rule. In 1989, a sector of the Communist Party, who was opposed to Gorbachev's leadership, launched a campaign for an autonomous Russian Republican-level Communist Party, and that is what kind of came around. And um, they would argue that the Russian nation had regressed during Soviet rule and that it was necessary to form a central committee of the Communist Party. Later on in this series, I am going to get into what actually happens in Moscow during uh, the early 1990s, especially surrounding Mikhail Gorbachev, because there is an attempted coup, an attempt on his life, as the Soviet Union really is crumbling. So I'll get into that to more depth, but for now I'm just going to go through some of the events. Checkpoint Charlie was dismantled on June 22nd. This, of course, was the very famous American-run checkpoint through the Berlin Wall into East Berlin from West Berlin. It is a major um, aspect of the story in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. On July 1st, 
With regard to German reunification, East Germany and West Germany merged their economies, and the West German Deutschmark became the official currency of the East as well. And the inner German border also ceases to function. On July 6th, the president of Bulgaria resigned over accusation that he ordered tanks to disperse anti-government protests on December 1989. On July 25th, the Serb Democratic Party of Croatia declared the sovereignty of the Serbs in Croatia. The civil war that erupts in the former Republic of Yugoslavia is a big uh, conflict in that area during the early 1990s. In fact, I remember reading quite a bit about it and, and even I think doing some sort of research report on it in high school at one point, especially uh, the conflict that involved Bosnia. On July 27th, Belarus declared its sovereignty, a key step toward independence from the Soviet Union. Uh, Belarus has actually been in the news lately. If you're listening to this live in late August of 2020, considering their um, current leader and his opposition to a fair election, to the point where the woman running against him had to flee the country for his her own safety because he uh, he is essentially a dictator who has been using police force and, and other uh, law enforcement means to silence his, his opposition, and there was fear that they would uh, try to assassinate her before the general election. Uh, forgive me for editorializing here, but from what I understand, that is not democracy. On August 1st, the National Assembly of Bulgaria elected Zelyu Zel Zelev as the first non-communist president of Bulgaria in 40 years. RELCOM was created in the Soviet Union by combining several computer networks, and later in August, the Soviet Union would get its first connection to the Internet. Remember, the Internet kind of comes in the United States through a United States military uh, project called the ARPANET, uh, or at least that's one of the, um, the kind of the primordial soup of the Internet as, as we know it. On August 2nd, Iraq invaded Kuwait. This, of course, would eventually lead to the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield, which would eventually morph into Operation Desert Storm in early 1991. East Germany, West Germany on August 23rd, they announced that they will officially reunite on October 3rd. The next day, Armenia declared its independence from the Soviet Union. And on August 26th in Sofia, protesters set fire to the headquarters of the governing Bulgarian Socialist Party. So those are the events, which is kind of the laundry list of events that were happening in Eastern Europe as well as the former Soviet Union during June through August of 1990. And what I want to spend some time on this episode is what's referred to as the Singing Revolution. It's come up in a couple of these historical rundowns, and it does span pretty much most of this two-year period that I'm looking at on this show. The Singing Revolution is the name given to the revolution that took place in the Baltic Soviet Socialist Republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. These were the first three Soviet republics to break off from Moscow. And if you understand the relationship and history that these three countries had with the Soviet Union, as well as Russia prior to it, it's easy to see why they were the first to declare their independence. So the history, even prior to 
1989, when these revolutions really started, was complicated. Because even before the Soviet Union itself was established, these three countries resisted the control of the Tsar and then the central communist government. Meaning that if they were ever in lockstep with what Moscow wanted when they were part of the Soviet Union, it was usually not by choice. And the most important event prior to 1989 occurred in 1939 to 1940. That is the enactment of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This is the infamous agreement between Stalin and Hitler, wherein the Soviets invaded Poland in 1939 alongside the Nazis, an invasion which also resulted in the occupation of these three Baltic states, which were at the time independent countries. That Soviet occupation was temporarily halted in 1941 because Hitler tried to invade the Soviet Union and the Nazis, well, they were just as ruthless as the Soviets when they did take over Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which I know is shocking to everybody. But anyway, under Nazi rule in the early 1940s, about 256,000 Lithuanian and Latvian Jews were sent to their deaths. The Soviets did regain control of the countries, of course, in 1945, with the British and the American governments more or less allowing them to retake them and occupy them, even if they did view those countries as occupied territories as opposed to part of the Soviet Union, especially because there was armed resistance to the USSR in each of them until 1953, when that was finally put down. The Soviet Union governed Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania for the remainder of the Cold War, but each country's populace shared a deep anti-Soviet sentiment. And that brings me to the 1980s, especially 1989. Remember, there is an inevitability of sorts when it comes to the collapse of the Soviet Union, especially as you get into its economic problems in the, in the 80s. Mikhail Gorbachev's reforms via perestroika and glasnost were meant to alleviate a lot of those problems, but that also meant that they opened up some of the Eastern Bloc to the West. And so far, what we've seen is revolution in a number of satellite states like Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, the latter of which was another state whose people were very anti-Soviet. Czechoslovakia saw uprisings that were put down by military invention through like in the 60s and etc. The Baltics, the three countries I'm talking about, to nobody's surprise, followed suit. What was surprising was that the revolution was pretty much nonviolent. So why is it called the Singing Revolution? Well, the term was coined by Estonian activist and artist Heinz Volk, and it has its origins in a series of songs that were written by Alo Maltesen called The Five Patriotic Songs. And I have to, once again, I'm going to apologize so many times over the course of this show and other shows of my butchering of, of some names. I, I think I have them down and then I'm like, I don't think so. So my, my apologies for butchering, butchering Slavic and other uh, names of other people and other cultures. At any rate, the Five Patriotic Songs premiered at the Tartu Pop Festival in May 1988 in Estonia. In Latvia, a song called Grismas Pils, which was a song about free, a free Latvian nation, was gaining popularity at the same time, even though it was censored by Soviet authorities. In Lithuania, patriotic songs started gaining traction in 88, one of which was the national anthem of Lithuania, the one that existed before the 1939 Soviet invasion. And this, as a revolution, starts to build slowly. 
through underground movements and organizations similar to what we saw in the German Revolution of 1989 that led to the Berlin Wall coming down. In the case of the Singing Revolution, it took up to four years with the independence of the three nations being granted in 1991, shortly before the Soviet Union ceased to exist entirely. The big event, if there is one, takes place on August 23rd of 1989, when approximately 2 million people joined hands to form a human chain across all three of the countries, a moment that became known as the Baltic Way or the Baltic Chain. This particular event had its origin in the annual Black Ribbon Day Remembrance. Uh, this is also known in the EU as, Europe as the European Day of Remembrance for the Victims of Nazism and Stalinism. This actually began with these revolutions in the late 80s, and the specific day of August 23rd was chosen because it is the date the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed. That pact was something that the Soviet Union denied for years, even though it was well known to have existed. Plus, the Baltic states knew that if they could establish a legitimate connection between the pact and Soviet occupation, then Soviet rule would be voided because the three states were invaded as opposed to voluntarily joining the USSR. And here is where things get complicated for Moscow. Gorbachev, like I said, did institute perestroika and glasnost. They were way more liberal than anyone would have expected within the Soviet Union, even though, like I said, there's a necessity or at least an inevitability to them if the Soviet Union wants to survive. Ironically, they help bring about the Soviet Union's downfall. But like I said, what you do in the Baltic states is that you couple this with an already existing resentment, as well as a desire for more independence. So the moment is ripe for some sort of revolution. Moscow tried to offer some sort of concessions to the three, three countries, such as granting the three states the right to challenge Soviet law, but those concessions came without true autonomy as Moscow insisted on keeping economic, political, and cultural restrictions in place. So it's 1989, 50 years since the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed, and at some point that summer, activists from all three countries begin communicating with one another and planning a massive protest. The idea for a human chain comes about in July, and on August 12th, activists and leaders in all three states sign a pact. The human chain was very well organized. The activists mapped it out, helped provide free bus rides to the protest, and the Estonian government even declared the day a national holiday so workers could have the day off. The chain connected Vilnius, Riga, and Tallinn, which are the capitals of the three Baltic states, and it ran along major highways. Number estimates range from 1 million, with the activists saying there were nearly double that, which would be about 25% of the entire population of the three countries' 8 million inhabitants of the time. People linked up for 15 minutes, starting around 7 o'clock p.m. local time, and then they eventually moved on to local protests, all of which were peaceful. A human chain of protest. In Tallinn, the Estonian capital, Hundreds of thousands turned out to mourn what they see as their loss of independence 50 years ago today. Using radio broadcasts to coordinate their chain, people all across the Baltic states formed a line for nearly 400 miles. It stretched from Estonia through Latvia to Lithuania. There were freedom songs. 
in tears among those who remembered when the Baltics were free, and signs. We used to be in a free country, and that's what we fight for. And we will fight, not with the guns or aeroplanes or bombs, but we fight for our freedom. What people here now demand is that Moscow repeal the deal signed so long ago between Stalin and the Nazis. They want complete independence from Moscow. They want to run their own economy, their own society. While Moscow has now moved to denounce the 1939 pact as immoral, it says it makes no difference to the status of the Baltics now. They want uh, to keep us in the Union at any cost. Uh, they don't want to let us go. This anniversary has served to embolden the independence movement to present yet another challenge to Mikhail Gorbachev. Yet a Soviet TV commentary tonight made it plain real independence is not an option. Mutual trust and negotiation, say the Soviets, are the answer. History must not aggravate the events of today. Jim Laurie, ABC News, Moscow. It was a nonviolent protest, and while it did result in criticism of local leaders by Soviet officials, the gesture, as well as the continued pressure put on Moscow by the organizers, led to Gorbachev signing a rebuke of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, allowing free elections in 1990, and eventually the establishment of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania as independent countries in 1991. Of course, this did not happen without complications. Soviet tanks did try to suppress the mo movement in 1991 and were met with human chains of protesters while the governments declared their independence. There was also a coup attempt on the part of hardliner communists in each of the commun countries in August of 1991, each of which failed, and the three countries were declared fully independent around August 20th to 21st of that year, completing a process that had formally started in 1990. Out of all three of the countries, Lithuania did see the most bloodshed. From January 11th through the 13th of 91, the events referred to as the January killings took place. The country had first declared its independence from Moscow in March of 1990, but faced occupation by Soviet troops as well as an economic blockade. This led to hyperinflation and the government raising prices, something that resulted in huge protests by workers, protests that, by the way, were spurred on by the Soviet government. Because you see, the people protesting were those with Russian ethnicities, and the Soviet government fomented this unrest through propaganda campaign that directly targeted ethnic strife. Then they sent troops in. Gorbachev refused a request to recall those troops, and that led to the Red Army essentially trying to invade the country on January 11th, with troops seizing government buildings throughout the Lithuanian capital city of Vilnius. This continued into January 12th, with military buildings, police buildings, and media buildings being the biggest targets. The central TV tower was an especially important target and became the center of the siege, which is where a huge crowd of civilians gathered. Tanks fired at the TV building, causing hearing loss in many of the protesters, and they ran over people, which is one of the reasons that these events are referred to as the January killings and that particular day being called Bloody Sunday. The Red Army successfully entered the TV station and cut its feed, but about a half an hour later, a smaller station in the city of 
Kaunas started broadcasting in several languages about what the Soviet army was doing in Lithuania. The message eventually was picked up by Swedish television, and then it was sent across the world. In all, 13 people died because of the Red Army, with one other person dying of a heart attack and a Soviet soldier being killed by friendly fire. The end result was the retreat of Soviet troops, a renouncement of the Soviet Union by Lithuania and the rest of the world, and the August 1991 establish of an independent Lithuanian government. And perhaps this was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union itself. The country would completely cease to exist at the end of 1991, and I'll obviously get to that event and the events leading up to it in later episodes. But around this time, I was about to start high school, and I remember that when I heard about this on the news, it actually registered with me as important. Because if actual Soviet republics could leave that country, then others could. Of course, I had no context at the time for any of the sentiment these nations felt toward Moscow, but unless you were following foreign policy and world events really closely and had studied the history of Eastern Europe, who did? None of the other 14-year-old guys I hung around with. All we were interested in was playing street hockey. But this is also where knowing this context is important, because I think that we, as Americans, can understand how decades of resentment at best, and oppression at worst, can result in calls for revolutionary change. We have seen it in our own country time and again. Heck, it's one of the ideals upon which our country was founded, and the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances is literally codified into our Constitution. When a group speaks up, and you critically examine their grievances and see that it comes from 50, 100, 150 years or more of being wronged by the government, you understand their protest and even support it, especially if they aren't calling for the oppression of others, but instead want to share and expand basic human freedoms and rights. I realize it sounds naive considering the very dark place the world is in right now. But as I continue to take a look at this two-year period from three decades ago, I have to admit that I do find hope. Humanity has, time and again, found a will and a means to protect and thwart authoritarian governments and leaders, and I hope we can continue to look to examples like this in history as inspiration. Next episode, I'll be looking at the events of September to November of 1990 with another in-depth section, but right now what I'm going to do is take a break. When I get back, Luke Giaconetti is going to join me to talk about science fiction with a special focus on the day the Earth stood still and Godzilla. So stick around. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. 
What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. My guest this time around to talk about science fiction movies, specifically The Day the Earth Stood Still, and, the, and a couple of Godzilla movies, is a person who has been a guest on this show before. He is the uh, host of Earth Destruction Directive over here on Two True Freaks and, and a good friend of mine. Please welcome back to the show, Luke Giaconetti. How are you doing, Luke? I am doing great, Tom. Thank you very much for having me back on. Had so much fun last time talking about communism that we had to come back and do it again. Yeah, I've been having, I've been having a lot of fun um, um, with the show, with the research, and, and and some of the other things, especially the entertainment. Um, I had a, I will, I'll have to plug another show you were on, and I don't remember the episode number, but you were on uh, Professor Allen's uh, Quarter Bin podcast talking about public domain comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometime in the last few months, I, I binged a bunch of episodes recently, and uh, you brought up you did bring up some of the comics we talked about. But that was a great episode because those public domain comics are just uh, it's a such a fun rabbit hole to fall down. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, we we hear about all the time. Oh, you know, DC Silver Age was crazy. This is like you'd haven't seen crazy till you've dug into public domain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it is like a hold my beer sort of scenario, especially when they're like pre-code. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, yes, yeah. Then horror horror is good, crime is good, and that was something that you know you and I didn't talk about because we were talking about war comics. Um, this time around, I'm, I'm back in science fiction uh, after spending some time in the like educational film propaganda realm last episode, and uh, we're we're moving away from the communist paranoia stuff. Uh, mainly because I think, at least at this point, it's it's been well covered. Um, I can recommend other movies uh, of the type. 
uh, some that cross over in science fiction, some that cro- that don't. Uh, two that come to mind. Uh, one is the sci-fi classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, the original 1950s version is very much a communist allegory, although I do really enjoy the uh, 78 version starring Donald Sutherland. It's a really, really good yeah. remake. Uh, and if, if you would like to hear more about Invasion of the Body Snatchers on this podcast network not too long ago, uh, my brother, Jason, over on his show, mm-hmm. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, him and my father took a look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is one of my brother's all-time favorite films. So he's been uh, – him and him and my dad really kind of dig in on that one. So if you're interested in uh, cool. getting a little more detail on that, go check out the Bots, Bugs, and Babes feed. Cool. Maybe I will. Um, I also, uh, I, you know, a, a, a piece of literature that might pull up on um, required reading at some point in the future, because I know it's on my list and probably Stella's is Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which was uh, about the mm. Salem Witch Trials, but really is a direct or, you know, symbolic look at, at McCarthyism. And then a movie yep. that, uh, that, that, uh, Maybe somewhere down the line, either on this show, might get some a little more mention, or, or maybe on pop culture every day. That I absolutely love a political thriller, The Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. uh, with Frank Sinatra and Janet Lee and Angela Lansbury. Um, I, I never saw the Denzel Washington remake, but uh, but that original, which I think I watched for a Cold War politics class actually in college, uh, such a great movie. It's just one of those really solid, um, solid political thrillers from about. I want to say 62, but I'm not entirely sure of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about a, a totally different paranoia from the Cold War, and that is the uh, the nuclear <laughs> the, the nuclear paranoia, uh, the or or the, just kind of the consequences of using technology. Um, this is not as uh, dire as say the day after or the Terminator. Uh, or later on in the 90s, The Matrix, um, you know, where where the invention rises up to basically destroy us in some way or another. And and I have an episode planned later on on the day after, and and those types of movies from the early 80s because that was another era um, that that you and I have uh, some some memory of. We were we were both pretty mm-hmm. young at that point, but in the early very very early 80s, the threat of an imminent nuclear war had really risen. But we're staying back in the in the 50s and 60s and and dipping into the 80s a little bit with the day the Earth stood still. And, and some Godzilla movies. Um, we're going to start with the day the Earth stood still. Um, I'm. We're really not going to get deep into plot summary or anything like that here. We'll just kind of do a, a quick overview of what the movie's about. And uh, this movie was directed by Robert Wise. Uh, he is really a really acclaimed director. One of those who he has two Oscars for movies that have nothing to do with science fiction. They are both musicals. He won Best Director for The Sound of Music and West Side Story. Uh, He also Mm -hmm. directed the Orson Welles film The Magnificent Ambersons, the uh, 1971 science fiction movie The Andromeda Strain, and yes, Gene and Scott, he did direct Star Trek, the motion picture. I was not (laughs) going to leave that one out. Uh, he also directed The Sand Pebbles, which is not a movie I've seen, but my dad raved about it. Um, and it's one of yeah. those movies that's just it's on my it's on my list. And he directed the original version of The Haunting. So, you know, I was looking up this guy's IMDb uh, resume earlier uh, today and I was like, oh, wow, this, you know, he's just one of those directors that just had this prolific career um, and and popped in and out of different genres. 
Um, it stars Michael Rennie, who uh, was a British actor uh, and was cast as the alien Klaatu, and the uh, leading lady in the movie uh, was Patricia Neal, an Oscar winner herself. She played Helen. Um, the movie had a moderate success upon release. Uh, it got pr- critical praise, though. It is in the uh, Library of Congress's vault of um, like movies that are uh, preserved for the sake of their cultural relevance, etc. Uh, and uh, another very important thing in science fiction was Bernard Herrmann's score, because it was one of the early uses of the instrument, the theremin, in science mm-hmm. fiction scoring. And the theremin gives you that eerie sound that that's a terrible impersonation of a theremin uh, <laughs> that you hear in a lot of early science fiction movies and Bernard Herrmann again um, really like the John Williams of his generation you know he's psycho um, some other scores that are escaping me but there was a time where I was I think he did double indemnity there was a time where I would have to, where I would watch old movies here and there and his name would pop up continuously as as one of the people who did who did the scoring um, basically, the, the general gist of this movie is that uh, Klaatu is this alien who flies a flying saucer to Earth, and it lands in um, Washington, D.C., and the ellipse near the National Mall. He comes out with his robot named Gort, and he has a message uh, for the people of Earth. The people of Earth are kind of par- paranoid, and um, basically the message that he's sending is that he and his fellow aliens, this sort of UN, United Federation of Planets, if you will, has been observing Earth for some time, and they see the path that Earth is on with developing bigger and bigger weapons of mass destruction. Um, Being that this movie was released in 1951, we're about a year into the Korean War, uh, this, the Americans obviously had dropped two atomic bombs on Japan in 1945. The Soviets had successfully tested and detonated an atomic bomb in 1947. Mao Zedong had come to power in China in 1949. So the uh, this particular threat of of a World War Three was very much on people's minds. Um, and, and he says, you know, you have to choose, um, you can get, you can join us in peace or continue on your destructive path or, or, and, and that, and that's your choice. And they talk about how they built robots like Gort, which is this all powerful robot to keep them all in line because Gort, you know, has absolute power over them if they step out of line. Um, and that's a really, really, really cursory glance at the plot of the film (laughs) um before we get into just kind of talking what this movie is about and stuff uh do you have like what is your what is your origin or your background with this film so the uh, the day the earth stood still this one goes back to my childhood uh gort was a absolute favorite of mine from childhood I've always have loved the image of Gort, mm-hmm. you know, the the giant, uh, completely smooth robot, uh, such a Art Deco style robot. Yeah. So I, this is one that I've I've seen many times. Again, going back to my childhood, my father is a big fan of this. My brother's a big fan of this. In fact, uh, again, if you want a more in depth coverage of Blow by Blow, uh, Jay and Dad mm-hmm. did cover the day the Earth stood still on Bots, Bugs, and Babes. So you can take a look in the archive for that one. But yeah, so this is one that I've known for a long time and. Uh, and it's always kind of stuck with me. It was an early film that I had on DVD 
so I got to pull out my very old school DVD <laughs> to watch it this time. But it, it holds up really well because it's it's one of the you know, it's it's one of those science fiction films that in the fifties there were a lot of science fiction films, but for every kind of ten schlocky kind of cash in, you know, uh, juvenile matinee type movie, there was an intelligent, you know, really had a on point message one. And this is one of the early, very early ones of that. And I think it, the, 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 the really intelligent and thoughtful screenplay and the, the acting, especially for Michael Rennie, uh, keeps this one being relevant to this day. Yeah, I, I, one of the notes I wrote down was the arrival touchdown presentation of Klaatu is very straightforward. It's very smooth, and there's no, like, plan nine from outer space about it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, or those schlocky creature feature type of, of uh, you know, Little Green Men type of movies. And, and it does, it, it it is a very sincerely prevent, presented film that's a very tight movie it's only about 90 minutes a little bit over 90 minutes long um which uh in conversations with with gene hendrix on my other sh- on, on pop culture david about star trek and then just in the internet lately I'm, I'm starting to come to the belief that unless your movie does warrant a three-hour running time you know unless you are making something on the scale of lawrence of arabia you really should not go beyond two <laughs> hours well, you know, it's it's funny because uh, something I end up – something uh, that I talk about a fair amount on both um, – on a couple of my shows is that film we, – we tend to look at film, we look at it critically. It's either art or it's commercial. Mm-hmm. But really, no film is entirely one or the other, right? Film is both commercial and art. Yeah. So – but the commercial side says – if you, you know, in the the environment that we have, at least we did when the theaters were open, the environment of theaters that we had where multiplexes had taken over and the, the nabes and the drive-ins were now kind of just niche. They weren't the major um, exhibition locations. The more screens you have, the marginal cost of making your movie goes down, making your movie longer, I should say, goes down. Mm-hmm. Adding another you know, 10 minutes onto your movie, the marginal cost used to be, well, if we make it too long, we're going to miss out on having an extra show each day and we're going to lose money. Whereas now the number of screens, especially for the big budget movies and, and David Erstead still was, was a, was a big budget movie for the time. It was a big release. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the, now for the big budget movies, the marginal cost of making it 10 minutes longer has gone way down. Yeah. You know, so it's like, well, if we can make it a little bit longer, we can cram in more stuff. We can do more effects. We can do more this. We can do more that. And people are more I, – I think that kind of the tipping point was about 2001 or so when we had within the span of, of two calendar months, really only about uh, maybe 40 days, we had the first Harry Potter and then the first um, Lord of the Rings yeah. came out in theaters. And both of those movies were fantasy films, which traditionally had been a bomb at the box office for many years. And they were both based on books and both two and a, a minute, a more than two hours long. Mm-hmm. I know uh, Fellowship was two and a half. I'm not sure exactly how long Harry Potter was. And both of them made Bafo box money. So it's like once you do that, then it's like, oh, we can make our movies longer now. That that math didn't exist back in the 50s when you when when your traditional screening was the neighborhood theaters were called the Nabes. Mm-hmm. So not not the drive ins and not the grind houses, but the Nabes and normal what we call mom and pop. 
you know, maybe one or two screen theaters. Not and even the I mean, even the big movie houses, those were relatively few and far between once you got out of the city. So you had to make your movie tight. And one thing, uh, you know, a and, and you know this as well as I do, a not so well made movie from this era can drag at 75 minutes. Oh, yeah. Whereas this at 90 minutes was relatively long for a genre picture, but it just it moves. It snaps along. It goes from beat to beat to beat. And it never is dull because you're thinking the entire time, even when there's not a lot of action. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to process. And you're, the, the characters are always very uh, – they ring true the entire time. It's not like, oh, we have to go do this because we need to kill 10 minutes. We need to have a chase scene or yeah. something. The, when we have a chase scene, it's tense and well done, and, and, you've, and you're concerned, and it has stakes, and then those stakes are paid off. So it helps that you've got a, a good cast and a good, a good director helming everything that, that keeps this, this moving along. And, and like I said, the, the story itself, it is, like you say, it's very straightforward. It's not very bombastic, but uh, it, it's, it doesn't have maybe the, um, you know, it does have a few uh, really, uh, you know, memorable bits like Gort blasting all the uh, all the weapons out of everyone's hands on the, on the mall uh, after uh, after Klaatu is, is shot, um, you know, by a nervous uh, kid, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, surrounding him. But the, the parts that always stand out to me are more dialogue. Right. You know, or, or the quiet scenes like when uh, Klaatu and the, the boy go to the Lincoln Memorial, you know, though, or, or when they um, or even when they're uh, the, they're they're talking or when the people are all sitting around listening to the radio. One of my favorite lines in this movie, uh, the wife says, well, they're just people. He goes, people, my foot, they're Democrats. You know? <laughs> <laughs> even back then we have this yeah. party. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, I always I always think of I don't I don't mean to, to tangent too much, okay. but I always think of uh, the man with the golden gun mm-hmm. when Sheriff J.W. Pepper is from Live and Let Die is inexplicably on vacation in Thailand with his wife. And and the kid is trying to sell them a, a carving of an elephant. And he's yelling, elephant, elephant. And uh, and Mrs. Pepper goes, look, J.W., isn't that cute? He goes, elephant, we're Democrats, Maybell. <laughs> It's been a long time since I watched The Man with the Gold. That's right. I watched... God, how many Bond movies did I watch in college? Um, yeah, this... Actually, this was... I first saw this in its entirety in college. I... It was one that it was one that I think I had caught in, like, bits and pieces over the years, and I was familiar mm-hmm. with a number of the uh, more famous scenes in it, either from various Hollywood retrospective clip shows or maybe catching part of it on uh you know on television on a television airing or right. something uh but no, I, the, it was what was cool about seeing this at least is my first exposure to this in in full was through an intro to film class mm-hmm. and um easily just one of the most fun classes i took in college <laughs> you know i mean yeah oh yeah i yeah if if any any younger listeners out there or maybe you know older listeners that may be going back to school if you get an opportunity to take a intro to film class take it because i agree one of my favorite classes was uh was was film 201 at at, mm-hmm. at Clemson University as an undergrad uh and we we didn't get to watch the day the earth stood still but we did watch the road warrior oh nice so that that was for when we we were talking about popcorn cinema. That was our example. Was the Road Warrior? So I'm like, yeah, I can deal with that. Nice. <laughs> I did this. I did a paper on, and I don't remember what the thesis of the paper was, but it, we had to compare two of the movies that we had watched for this first paper 
that touched upon similar genres or similar themes, and we had watched 2001, A Space Odyssey, so mm, I, yeah. that was that. Uh, my other paper later in the year was The Graduate and 80s teen movies or something. I'm, I'm, I'm mm. tangenting. Uh, but yeah, that was that, and then the same semester I took a class called Fiction and Film, which was all about the principles of adaptation, which was really, mm. really cool. Um, that was the... That was the one I might have mentioned this when we did in country where I famously to me anyway, um, did a had to do a compare the, uh, compare the source work to its adaptation. So I chose heart of darkness and apocalypse now so that mm-hmm. I can you know, write about apocalypse now. And my roommate, Dennis, who was in ROTC, um, I had thrown the movie in cause I had to watch the movies like, Oh, I'll, I'll stay for a little bit. He ends up watching the whole movie. And, um, yeah. and at one point I'm looking over, I'm like, Dennis, you're getting that look in your eyes. <laughs> he used to sit there coming home from like PT every once in a while. Um, we had a Nintendo with the zapper and duck hunt and you play clay pigeons on duck hunt and just sit there mm. in the, in the fatigue pants and the shirt with like, you know, just the handout and like tracing, tracing, boom, tracing, boom. I mean, he had like, he was winning marksman awards, but it was just one of the funniest things to watch him play duck hunt because he was like high scoring it every time. Anyway. Mm. Um, but yeah, so you're talking about like the, the way, the way this is structured and the way it's done for drama is that it, it is a it is a quick movie, but there are pieces, bits and pieces of it that that allow it to be a little bit of a slow burn in places, and mm-hmm. and actually do do give it some chance to breathe or at least you know things um, let it explain itself in in places. Um, it's rare nowadays that we get something as like. I don't. I don't want to say preachy as the ending because I don't think it's preachy. But the sort of character making the speech to an audience when he's clearly almost yeah. breaking the fourth wall. We don't. We we get that in political movies or historical epics when it's you know a, a historical figure making that sort of thing. Uh, but this I think handles it well because it could have been very very ham handed and cheesy uh, at, at the end there. But but. But before that, yeah, you did mention that we do have a chase scene, which comes later in the film after we get the whole reason behind the title of the movie. So Klaatu has this, not totally like omnipotent power, but he's a very, very powerful alien and can do certain things in the ship. And and he ends up befriending a couple of people on Earth after getting accidentally shot by uh, the army and then escaping from Walter Reed Hospital. He swipes a major's the the suit of a guy whose name is major carpenter and he he goes and lives at the rents a room at the kind of boarding house where where patricia neil helen is living with her son because she's a widow um they visit his father's grave he had been killed in, in world war ii and he befriends bobby the kid he befriends her and then he befriends this like scientist who's very einstein-y very typical, mm-hmm. um, you know, Larry Fine hair, you know, it's <laughs> just, um, and, uh, yes. and, and, and the, the scientist, when, when, when Klaatu is obviously frustrated because what he wants is he wants to sit down with all of the leaders of the world or address everybody from an, every nation in the world to tell them what he tells us at the end of the movie. And the scientist says, well, maybe you, and they're all refusing and the scientist suggests doing a demonstration of his powers to just kind of snap them all into it so to speak 
And what he does is for a half an hour on a day from like 12 to 1230, he makes every piece of technology on the entire planet stop. Um, with the exception of things that are meant to keep people alive or that would, or, or that like turning things off would, you know, cause death. So hospitals are operational, planes are still in the sky, but everything on the ground, like cars stop, um, you know, the, he gets, the, Helen gets stuck in an elevator with him and he explains to her why he's there and everything. So that's why they call it the day the earth stood still. Um, mm-hmm. Which is interesting because we're so used to demonstration of power by aliens in movies as, like, wholly destructive. Right. Um, yeah, and, and but you know, this, this uh, and, and it, I like how this comes out of the discussion he has with Professor Barnhart. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Barnhart, you know, and what's great is that, you know, even when that whole conversation with Barnhart, um, Barnhart only for the most part, ask questions, which I think is appropriate for a professor to meet, you know, when he's meeting someone of Klaatu's obvious advancement, asks a lot of questions. Uh, but also he, he, even when he doesn't get the answers he wants, he is, you know, he, he's, he's the only one that really is of, of the authority figures in the film that, that is respectful and treats him as, you know, someone to learn from rather than someone to be feared. Uh, unlike you know the, the but the other closest one is the army doctor the uh, the doctor who treats him at at Walter Reed uh, but the yeah but the so but you're right the the idea of demonstrating your power in a, a nonviolent way is first off it's it, it's very creative and and I like that again even his inspiration just comes from Bobby's train set mm-hmm. that you know he's try, he pulls pulls that really neat. Uh, Lionel set out from under his bed and turns the transformer on. And so Klaatu looks at it and it's think he, th- you know, you can see the gears turning, you know? Uh, so that, that alone is, is neat, but just, again, you're right. Just showing it the a demonstration of power without it being uh, a violent display or a destructive display is, you can say it's atypical for the, for that sort of, uh, for a science fiction film, especially of this, of this vintage and even going on later, you know, um, I think for folks our age, a touchstone is Independence mm-hmm. Day, which was the first of the real hardline sci-fi disaster movies of the 90s that really – that I mean that was the entire marketing campaign yeah. was them blowing up stuff. you know, And, and that, that's like uh, pretty much the entire end of the first act of that movie is them blowing up as many landmarks as possible as a demonstration of their power. Yeah, and they, you know? and they arrive in a very, very similar fashion, um, which I think probably – was done as a reference to a movie like this, or then later in, or, or just slightly earlier than, than Independence Day, uh, the V miniseries from NBC. Yes. Where they, you know, and Klaatu does the same thing. He just shows up. You know, there's no, mm-hmm. and and I, I actually really appreciate that in that there's no um, prologue with the aliens or there's no prologue with humans knowing that anybody's coming because I think, for lack of a better you know, viewpoint, I think that's exactly what would happen with us, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this situation. Like we would all be caught completely by surprise that this, that this thing lands in the middle of, you know, where it lands, you know, of course, in independence day that they don't say anything and all of a sudden they open up and they blow up many, many buildings, including the white house, which was the most famous scene in the, the trailer. I remember back in, yes, back in the day. 
but yeah, and uh, so one of the one of the great ironies though is that because he comes in peace and he's he's trying to present peace and brotherhood and togetherness, and um, he has a device with him when he first arrives that he pulls out and it gets smashed. But this device was something; it was a gift for our president so that he could learn about you know all the other races in the galaxy, etc. Um, and it's that. Almost this criticism of, of of humanity's tendency to be, for no pun intended, like trigger happy, or, mm-hmm. or or paranoid, or scared, or very prone to a maybe not always a violent reaction to things, but definitely a negative reaction to things, especially when when we are fearful, and that's what he seems to be very fearful of in terms of what, how far we have come with our technology for war. Yes. And, and, you know, but we, and this gets touched on when he's at, when Kalachi's at Walter Reed, I think it's uh major white is the name of the, uh, the position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's asking him, well, can we get all the leaders together? And he goes, well, he goes, uh, that might be a little awkward. You know, he kind of, he kind of gives him the old soft shoe, yeah. you know, he, he, he the, the phrase is, there's a lot of tension and suspicions. And then he reads all the responses from the different, um, you know, uh, the, the different world leaders and their responses to the president's inquiry, that could they all come, and and you and and you know, so so you get this, you get that, and, and it's, you know, I've it's it's not one thing I do like about this is that it doesn't particularly blame any one side, you know, mm-hmm. and that yes, he does land in D.C. and yes, he is shot by an American soldier, but at the same time it's not it's not saying, well, you know, the Soviets want to play ball, the Chinese want to play ball, it's just the Americans that are pig-headed and stubborn. It's like, no, everybody is, which is, which is correct, especially in this era. Nobody wanted, you didn't want to be the one to show a sign of weakness. Yeah. You know? When, and so you don't want to be the one that said, yes, we'll come over to you because that's a sign of weakness. And now, you know, that, now that has other repercussions because everyone is everyone is, is you know, uh, got the same people, the same type of people, I should say, all whispering in their ears, all their Grima worm tongues, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to get another Lord of the Rings reference. And 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 so, yeah, so you, you, you get a sense of that people are the same all over, that if that if he had landed in. Uh, let's say Moscow, maybe landed outside of Red Square, that it might have been a similar result. Now, would he have been taken and treated, or would he have been shipped off somewhere and you know, Gort destroy the world? We don't know. Stalin was still know? in charge. I, I mean, I'm just saying that's a totally different movie when suddenly Gort is like yeah. you know moving moving uh, west across uh, across Asia into Europe, destroying everything. Which is, but that, that again, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe on Earth too. That's the day the Earth stood still, but. So I, I do, like I said, that it is definitely a, the same type of idea. And that's, and that's, and I like that also is that that's Klaatu's message is that, you know, because he, he says it several times, it's like you people are warlike and you can continue to do and kill yourselves for whatever your petty squabbles are. But the second you threaten the peace of outer space, we're going to step in. So it's that, it's sort of that, um, that wise older brother that's going to come in and put a stop to your shenanigans yeah. situation, you know? And uh, and and it's not that you know oh the the American way is the right way it's like no we're all we're all pretty much wrong here you know every every nation on the planet that has uh, any type of of real superpower status is 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 in the wrong here and that there's always you know, there's always a bigger fish there's somebody that's going to come in and, and put us on the right path or else and so it, it's once again the danger of technology left unchecked to the point that. 
And 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 the other thing is a little more subtle. It's technology in the hands of people who don't understand mm-hmm. it, because the scientists from around the world they all respond to Professor Barnhart's invitation, and they want to come and talk to Klaatu and learn. Yeah. But it's the politicians, the ones who ultimately are in control of that technology, that are unwilling or unable to to put aside their differences to listen. Yeah, and so they're they're the ones that are that that are causing the problem in the first place. Yeah. And Sam Jaffe is, as uh, Dr. Barnhart is is outstanding in this because he displays that almost childlike sense of wonder at this at having this audience with this man and you you know that if he had the chance to basically not hold Klaatu captive for like uh, an entire weekend but basically spend a weekend with this guy he would just bombard him with questions and and you get that feeling from that what they set up at the end there um one of the things that I've always noticed about this movie is how Helen Helen is the one that he becomes um that he trusts the most beyond the scientist, and, and I think that uh, she's put there in the in the story to be an ordinary person who doesn't have a particular position of power or influence or higher intelligence. So, like, mm-hmm. she's kind of the stand in her and her her fiance, um, who is played by Hugh Marlowe, Tom Stevens, are the sort of stand in for the everyday Americans, and Tom, um, you know. Bobby's the one who figures out that Klaatu is isn't it, that Carpenter is is Klaatu the alien because he follows him back to the ship and he watches him get in the ship and they first think that Bobby's lying because you know little kids tell stories etc because Bobby's like he's like an opie basically like you know he's yeah. a kid but then you know then they both realize you know they they find the fact that uh that Klaatu had wanted to buy something like buy ice cream or whatever for for Bobby and uh yeah he didn't have any money. You know, he didn't have any of our currency and Bobby had a couple of dollars so he traded diamonds for him. And they were diamonds that as the, the jeweler that Tom takes him to says, they're not like anything else in the world. And that convinces Tom that, Oh, this is the alien. And, and it's what, what's this is, this is what, what strikes me is that, you know, we get a really good demonstration of how humanity can also be very, very selfish because he goes mm-hmm. to call the Pentagon and, I think he literally says, like, my face will be in the newspaper or something like, you know, this is going to make me a yeah, hero. It, and yeah, he at one point, his actual line is, I don't care about the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't get any more on point than yeah. that. And there are so many like that, you know, that there is there is a selfish nature to to the human race, even today, no matter what your persuasion or whatever. Yeah. Um, what I liked about having Helen be the one who really comes to to. F- find out or that Klaatu trusts, I think it's the key scene is when he's with Bobby and they go to Arlington mm-hmm. and they see yep. the graves and they see his father's grave. And, you know, again, this is a very, very smart character it, and they rely on the intelligence of the audience. They don't spell it out for us, for him trusting her, because if he tells her about, you know, I'm here to stop destruction and war, knowing that, hey, your husband was, Bobby's father was killed in a war, you know? And, right. and, and so th- there's that connection that they just rely on the audience to make of like, okay, why did he trust her? And you're like, oh. And then he trusts her with like the biggest secret, which is basically the kill switch for Gort. Because mm-hmm. um, that, cha- that chase scene is great too, because as much as I love like a good Steve McQueen, French connection, you know, um, guns blazing chase scene where like you know there there's right. a lot of collateral damage. 
this is a chase scene where they have most of the downtown DC cordoned off and having lived and worked in the D- I lived in Arlington back in my early 20s and I worked in Washington I worked near du- DuPont Circle which they passed through at one point or passed under at one point and it was like oh they kind of got the geography correct enough you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah they, they could have gone there but they basically kind of cordon off streets and they actually let them in the cab that they're in get to where they were going to go um mm-hmm. which in more modern movies you'd see a lot more hail of bullets and you know you worry yeah. about the, the damage it was doing to the people and everything but then you know he does get shot as he's running away right and and it's it's one of those things too where the tension is ratcheting up because you know, you're not sure if they're going to get away mm-hmm. or not. It doesn't. It seems like they might, but then first up, I love that it's the kids that say because it's such a '50s thing. Well, let's ask the kids. Exactly. And they say, "Yeah, they got into a cab and they went that way." Yeah. You know, and but uh, good job, son. But but then you know, it's you. Uh, but then at the very the, the the climax of the chase, when they literally shoot him in the street, it's like, did you not learn your damn lesson? When he turned off the, the, all the power in the world, I mean, it, literally, I, I love this. This is there, there's some some things you know people don't change. Mm-hmm. I mean, for half an hour, all the electrical energy in the world, except for things that will actively kill people, stops, and a day later, everyone goes back to their normal yeah, routine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you tell me that's not an indictment of of I don't care what decade you want to <laughs> exactly. pick, exactly, right? I mean, it's and it, there's you know and 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 so the, them shooting him in the street always it, it's it's one of those things where you're yelling at the screen. It's like you you saw what happened when you shot him once and he didn't kill him. Now you're just gunning him down. It's like I, I there's a there's another line in this movie again that is one that could be just about any decade you want to pick in the. Uh, uh, of the 20th or 21st century. He goes, I am fearful when I see people substitute fear for reason. And yeah. that is, again, that, that pretty, I mean, that sums up the movie to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, that's one of the reasons this movie holds up so well. Um, because it, you're right. It is such a natural reaction of us. And, um, and then the other thing that, uh, that really struck me and, um, that was really, really of the, of the time, um, of the time, but also very like, yeah, I could totally see this happening is he gets shot in the street and they crowd around him and she kind of sneaks away and yes, nobody makes the connection. Hey, maybe we should detain her because a, <laughs> a part of it is, you know, she's a woman. Like, what is she going to, you know, yeah. there, there's a, she's using that to her advantage and B it's a little bit of a panicked scene, you know, cause like, and, and, yes. and us as the audience is focused on, on him and we see her slink away and she obviously gets in a cab and she goes down to the, um, to the spaceship and, spaceship. and yep. Gort and Patricia Neal gives one of those great movie sci-fi screams, you know, when, when mm-hmm. Gort's approaching her yeah. and then she, she gets it together and she just starts saying, you know, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, which, uh, of course, George Lucas referenced in Return of the Jedi by naming three aliens on Jabba's sail barge, Klaatu, Barada, and Nikto. And I'm probably pretty sure I had at least two or, or three of those action figures when I was. Six oh yeah, or seven. I, I love. I I have. I I don't. I don't. I don't have any of the original ones mm. of those, but I do have later versions of them because I've got just about every figure from Jabba's retinue. 
because I love Jabba the Hutt. So, and, uh, and Return of the Jedi is my favorite. I, I'm gonna. I always catch flack for this, but Jedi is my favorite. So I I have upstairs. I have pretty much all of Jabba's palace going. So <laughs> I am. Um, I was a uh, not a. Star Wars is my favorite because it's the one I watched the most. But if you want to say like this was my Star Wars movie, it was Jedi uh, because mm-hmm. of my age. But it was the right yeah. age, yeah. So, but uh, but with with this, um, so we get to, we we get the scene and, and Gort shuts down and and Klaatu comes back to life and uh, it, it's the idea that he's not immortal but he can be restored to a to a certain extent is is what they what they yeah. relate. Um, apparently, I was reading some trivia of this movie. There's a line where, where she asks about um, his immortality or his ability to cheat death, and he says something about the Almighty Spirit. And apparently, mm-hmm. uh, the the censor board, um, whatever the the board, the pre- the precursor to the MPAA was, actually asked them to put that in because they didn't want him, this all powerful being hero of the movie, to seem above god so it was was kind of as a concession made uh for the censors so to speak um but the the irony to me is that gort is the one holding on the power so they basically they kind of build a weapon to keep them all peaceful it's not so much adrian veidt dropping a squid on manhattan at the end of watchmen spoiler alert but um, mm-hmm. it is very much along the lines of we have a tool of ultimate destruction, and it's the reason we don't fight. Right. It's it's what we uh, would be, eventually be called Shoot mutually destruction. assured destruction. Yeah. Yeah. And and so in in that sense, it's it's kind of prescient. You know, there's the idea of you know you you don't fire because no one's going to survive it. Is I mean that that's still part of our deterrent strategy mm-hmm. today. You know, we don't it's our our nuclear deterrent strategy uh, in the United States is a little bit different now because the the lines are not quite as black and white as they they were even into the 80s, even basically up to the dissolution of the. Well, really, it was the salt talks, but then eventually the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But the but it's still the same idea, the idea that you have enough of a enough of something terrible that. You that that anyone who thinks about doing it thinks twice yeah. and knows that there's no way we're going to pull this out. And that's essentially what it is. So Klaatu says that exactly like you said, that they have these robots that they have absolute power. And if anyone steps out of line, you know, that they're, they're all they're the ones that step in. You know, uh, she asks, you know, can can Gort do that? And Gort could destroy this planet, which is which is great. Mm. And, and like I said, Gort is. He's such a simplistic design, but there's so much power in that simple design. And one thing that's really neat is that the way that Gort was uh, created on screen, there are basically two suits, and they're both made of uh, neoprene, like neofoam neoprene. Uh, so if you've got like one of the, if you've got like those really fancy, uh, you know, weatherproof seat covers in your in your Jeep, listeners, you you know what neoprene is. Um, so one of them laced up the back. And one of them laced up the front. So if you look, there's never a, a scene where we actually see Gort turn around and see both his front and back in the same shot. It's always either a cut or it's disguised or he's blocked or something. 
And uh, that way it gives the appearance of him being a single piece, you know, a single completely uh, rolled or milled piece of, of uh, metal that has no seams. Yeah. Except for his, you know, where his eyes, his his little visor comes up, and that is that to me is is so perfect because, you know, a, a ding that's always thrown at at robots in movies. Oh, I can see the I can see where the seam yeah. is or the zipper or whatnot. Uh, but in his case, it's like no, it's it's pretty much exactly what you want. You know, it, it, there's there's no way to produce something like that. You know, so it. it, it like I said, it looks Art Deco-y, so it looks kind of familiar from a design, but at the same time, he's also very alien because uh, there's no corners, there's no edges on well, him. So it's like, how how did they yeah, build it? And, you and know? The, the ship is similarly designed where it's it's your very typical flying saucer for that era um, because that was already an image in the popular culture. But the, apparently they constructed it so that, like, you know, the, the part where the seam was to open it up, there was some putty there that they put so that it looked like you could not find an opening. And and yes. I love that. I love that effect of the ship because it does look like he comes from the thing that slides out from nowhere. It's like, where is all this hidden in the ship? And it's a really mm-hmm. it's a really great effect. And, and I just get this feeling that when making the movie that Robert Wise and, and, and the producers and stuff knew the limitations of the special effects they were dealing with, and knew that if they stretched it too far, it was going to look too fake, which, you know, w- which would have been good for like a B movie. But they were really going for a more serious type of of, of film of film here mm-hmm. in the same way that uh, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers is not overly cheesy in its in its effects right. and stuff like that. So that 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 restraint creates a real uh, helps that movie movie last quite a bit. But yeah, this is just it's. It's a it's a film that I still think applies today. And you were talking about, like, of course, nuclear uh, nuclear mutually sure destruction of those policies. I know that the the added threat of nuclear pro- proliferation through the nineties and mm-hmm. two thousands is is something that has has changed part of our approach to nuclear warheads yeah. because you don't because it's it's one thing for uh, the former Soviet Union to have a stockpile of nuclear weapons because it's a very familiar situation. It's another thing for it to get into the hands of like Al Qaeda. You know, and that and that that was I know that's something that the intelligence community was very focused on, especially through the later part of the nineties and um, you know, when we're ta- they were they would talk about like nuclear and chemical weapons falling into the wrong hands because mm-hmm. there is a lack of restraint on the part of a lot of those groups when they're you know whenever their, their objective is. And of course, this is kind of it's conjecture on my part, but it's also kind of projecting beyond the scope of the show. Uh, but but yeah, so a movie that is, is is of its time, but at the same time remains timeless because, like you said, oh, yeah. of the way humanity acts. And the way it has a, uh, and, and the commentary that it is offering. Yeah, people don't change, you know. Uh, where we the, the 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 details might change, what we're afraid of might change, but you know what what's I forget my my brother says this one all the time. Uh, a person is smart. People are mm-hmm. stupid, you know. A person is brave. People are fearful, yeah. and and that's what it is. In in you know there there's there's a. Uh, you know, as I said, you get you get enough enough people together, and they they will panic about something. It, it's very funny. My brother and I recently watched, um, not to not to uh, jump the gun to the to the next segment, but we recently watched <laughs> Godzilla vs. Hedra, which is Godzilla vs. a smog monster, and that movie was made in 1971. And there are aspects about that film that literally feel like they were made in 2020. Mm. 
dealing with not, you know, about uh, people's responses to crisis, uh, misinformation, um, you know, information that's, you know, has has no um, that is, uh, you know, has has no basis, but is accepted as fact, Uh, you know, simply changing your behavior instead of solving a problem, that that kind of thing. So in a similar way, you can watch the day the earth stood still and see it both as this is a direct commentary on the the, the post-war situation and the growing um, you know uh, potential danger of the possession of atomic weapons but then you can also look at it and read it in the context of 2020 and it still it still works because th- those basic human uh, traits those same behaviors that we short circuit to as people they're still there we still do oh, yeah. it yeah. You know, so and and there and there's still people in charge who don't understand the technology that they're in charge of. <laughs> well, I mean, let, we're, let's let's transition to Godzilla because um, this is uh, a series of movies and a, and a character created where there is some comp- commentary on nuclear weapons, nuclear war. This is going to sound more pithy than it's meant to be, but you know, if any country has the right to talk about the harm that nuclear weapons can do to a populace, it is Japan. Um, in fact, I was think I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, the messages and stuff in these movies, and I was also thinking about um, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, especially since the forty, no, God, like the eighty, the seventy fifth, seventy fifth. My dad was born 75th, in nineteen forty five. Seventy fifth anniversary of both just passed in the last couple of weeks when we're recording this. Yeah. Um, and I was just remembering, I was remembering the controversy surrounding. This was back in the mid nineties. Uh, surrounding the putting the Enola Gay on display at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. And uh, for the record, it is on display out at the um, annex near Dulles Airport. If, if anybody listening to this ever gets the chance to go out to Northern Virginia, I would recommend visiting. Uh, the, the main attraction there is the Space Shuttle, which... yes. Is enormous and gorgeous and just so. Oh great. yeah! But the Enola Gay is there, and um, my grandfather flew on a B seventeen over Europe, not a B twenty nine. But um, but this was a big controversy because of the it, it, it and it's a, and it's an issue. I remember having conversations about it at the time, and and having conversations in in high school and then college that were way more nuanced than I think I would have expected of of, of any of us at the time because you have that. On the one hand, just the, the horror of, of dropping an atomic bomb and what it did to people, but then you also have yep. the fact that if you look at because they are they most of the plans for Operation Downfall are declassified, and you look at the sheer number of lives that would have cost in months and months mm-hmm. and months of fighting. The the American casualties were projected from 1.7 to 4 million with possibly 400 to 800,000 deaths and then maybe 5 to 10 million Japanese casualties. I mean, I believe if that's that's like the entire most of like that's like most of World War 1, you know. And so right. there's it's not as binary in terms of thinking like you know was one better than the other because it's just you know, we, we put you know Robert Kaniger put making war no more at the end of comics. Yeah, for a reason, I mean, it's, right? It's, you know, it's it, like it, we don't yeah, want it's, to it's, see it's this. It's a, it's, it's right. It's it's a bad choice either way. There, there's no yeah. question. And 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 you're right. That it's often framed only from the American side. Well, you know, more Americans would have died. It's like no, more Japanese yeah. were projected to die as well. Especially again, given the not only the political climate of Japan at the mm-hmm. time, but just ignoring all of that the geography just simple geography meant that 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 the to actually go and and to to 
you know, successfully invade mm-hmm. Japan was just just logistically it was it's impossible to try and do that. It's one of the advantages of having a country the size of Japan be on an island. It just you know it, it's or a series of islands. It's just it's just that's just the way that that geography has has played out. So so yeah, I I, I remember some of that stuff about the Enola Gay, and it's one of those things again that's like you know. It, it, good, bad, or otherwise, it, it is history, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and we're seeing that exact argument today. And there's there's a difference between something that is a an actual historical uh, relic, mm-hmm. you know, to be a, a generic term, versus you know perhaps a monument or something, which is what we're really seeing nowadays. So I can understand both sides of that, you know, and it's and 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 it's you know, and you're right, J- Japan does have, and as you know, and again, I, I kind of. I've I've heard it. I've seen this very similar sentiment expressed in many different books about Japanese cinema, specifically genre cinema. That yes, as as the only country to have nuclear weapons used against them, they have a unique perspective. And what's interesting is that the not only do they have that perspective, but then that event has shaped so much of their post-war culture um, to the point that the, the Japanese Constitution has the three principles which is that they will not allow the use of, uh, possess, or, or uh, allow or use themselves nuclear weapons. And, and we'll talk about that in, in a minute because that, that comes into play very strongly um, in, in a later Godzilla film. But just and, – and then the fact that, you know, even looking at the results of, of World War II and the political climate at the time in that country, that's why they don't have a standing military per mm-hmm. se. You know, they only have the self-defense force and they're the only, you know, uh, country of their economic status that doesn't have a standing military. And and in the, so they, they are very unique in that respect. And so the a lot of these factors, this is what, you know, what, what created and what's really funny is that the, the horrors of war that were fresh in the minds of Ishiro Honda and Tomoyuki Tanaka and Eji Tsuburaya and uh, Akira Ufukube, all the guys who, who worked on these films, uh, they produced a character in Godzilla that was an allegory of the unchecked, rampant use of technology without a moral um, you know, guidance to, to say it's not right to do this and we should stop. And then they exported it to the West and made billions of dollars off of it. Well, this is... So there's there's a there's a certain yeah, irony. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what's interesting because it wasn't something that I got until um you know uh, until I would see the movies here and there um or, or you know learn a little bit more about it as an adult uh, because my introduction to Godzilla was um through like WPIX Channel 11 in New York showing the Godzillathon and I yes. know that I saw Godzilla King of the Monsters during one of them because I do remember Raymond Burr. Because I was like, oh, the Perry Mason yes. guy. I do remember seeing a couple of others. Uh, like, I know I do remember like being really pumped to watch Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Um, probably did see parts of 1985, but I think this is the first time I've watched it all the way through. I know for a fact my very first Godzilla movie was King Kong versus Godzilla shown on television you are you are not alone in that a lot a lot believe for a lot of people especially people our age that's true that was extremely common Mm -hmm. on not only on on uh broadcast television but on cable early days of cable um my brother and i have talked about that you know we we did king kong versus godzilla over on is it jaws with paul Mm -hmm. spataro and uh you know that that movie's such an easy sell oh yeah you know 
It's like it's King Kong, it's Godzilla. They're gonna fight, you know. Hey, you you watch, right, kid? You know, but uh, so yeah. And 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 uh, eighty five was one that WPIX would show up. I, I always seem to remember that one being on on like if they like you know WPIX they would sometimes do like especially in the summer they program a theme week of yeah, movies. Yeah. So at eight o'clock Monday through Friday, and I always remember if they did a Godzilla one, eighty five was always the anchor. It was Friday mm-hmm. night because it was the newest. So that was your Friday night movie, yeah. right, in the in the death slot, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I, you, you, I, I, you and me have similar experience of the WPIX, and I get uh, I get very wistful, you know, <laughs> WPIX and WOR, yeah. you know, back in the day. But uh, yeah, and and you know what's funny is that I was um, my first exposure to Godzilla was I was four years old, and my dad had a, uh, a tape on which he had taped King of the Monsters. Uh, then Gator the Three-Headed Monster from uh, 1964, and then uh, Rodan, the original Rodan, from, uh, which was in Japan in 1958, I want to say, and then Monster Zero, which was 1965, which was called Godzilla versus Monster Zero mm-hmm. back then. And I rewatched the, that tape over and over and over and over and over again. And I absolutely loved King of the Monsters. King of the Monsters was my favorite. It, and still is. I love the American version of that. I mean, the Japanese version is, is one of the best science fiction films of all time. But that American one really sticks with me. And, and you know, having R- Raymond Burr, who at the time I knew was a big star because my mom Mason, watched yeah. Perry Mason on TBS every afternoon, you know, having him describe the horrors of it and all the awful things that were going on. I've, I've had this... Uh, not so much a debate, but I've had kind of a little bit of back and forth with a uh, a fellow Daikaiju podcaster. Um, Daikaiju is giant monster in Japanese. Uh, kaiju is the general term. Dai meaning great. So generally speaking, a Daikaiju is a giant monster as opposed to a monster of varying size. Um, but I've had this, conver- this kind of back and forth where he's kind of been you know, very critical of the American localization, uh, even going so far as to use the Mark McGuire from The Simpsons meme. It's like you guys want to you guys want to get some serious questions or you want to see me hit some dingers. (laughs) (laughs) And and I said, oh, yeah, you know, Tokyo being turned into a sea of fire, you know, being surrounded, you know, uh, Martin talking about being surrounded by the dead and dying in the hospital. That's some real dingers, man. But as you know, as a kid. There's some scary stuff in that movie, and it and it put me on to, you know, a lot of my opinions about not only Godzilla, but about nuclear war. So. So I've, I've been there, man. I've, I've been there since day one-ish for me. Well, well something that I found interesting, too, just just reading a little bit of trivia on, on both uh, King of the Monsters and Godzilla 1985, which is where uh, – which is essentially a direct sequel uh, to it. Yeah, there's it, – it's – yeah, so so here's the thing. So the, the Godzilla films are broken up, generally speaking, into four eras. And um, they are mostly named after the era of Japan in which they were made. An era of Japan is named after the emperor. So from ni- from the original in 1954, which became Godzilla King of the Monsters in 56, through uh, 1975 with uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla, those are called the Showa era films. And those are generally the originals because it was under the term, term of Emperor Showa. Starting in 1984 – with Return of Godzilla, which got localized as Godzilla 1985, and running through 1995 with Godzilla vs. Destoroya, those are called the Heisei films. And so the way that the Heisei films worked is that the they basically took the events of the original and then made a sequel to that and ignored 
all of the films oh. in between. So, so, uh, and then, and then later it's starting in 1999 where we get the millennium films. And then the current era is called the Rewa era films, which are the Rewa films are a little bit more loosey goosey because they include the, the American films and the anime and the Japanese film. But, uh, but yeah, so basically the, the setup for that was that they took that, that there was a Godzilla that showed up and attacked Japan and was killed with the oxygen destroyer, which we'll talk yeah. about in a minute. And, and then in 1954, and then 30 years later, another Godzilla appeared. So it, it, it took the premise and updated it from the, the post-war Japan to really, I mean, as far as during, I want to say probably during both our lifetimes, the height of tension in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union and putting Japan right in the middle of it, you know, being a, a strong American ally within easy striking distance of the Soviet Union, that Japan has always been in a unique position yeah. like that. Uh, one of the, you know, uh, a common theme in a lot of, of Japanese genre cinema all throughout the Showa period, and even into the, 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 the you know, what we'd call the modern era into the 80s and forward, was the idea of international cooperation mm -hmm. and um, um, the, the term uh, nimawashi. Uh, nimawashi is a Japanese term that means aligning of the roots. And it means getting everyone to agree on a path of action before you take the path of action. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you've got a culture that is very strongly um, based around cooperation and uh, coexistence, you know, you think about Japan, they've got a very large population density in a very small geographic area. So getting along well with others is a strong cultural trait. Uh, traditionally in Japan, uh, you know, not trying to, you know, cause problems for others, because if you you're the one acting out of line, then everyone is inconvenienced. It's a very it, it's it does sound stereotypical, but it's very much very much a part of of the of Japanese culture and the Japanese way of life, traditional way of life. Now, obviously, th this is changing somewhat, but, you know, it, it's it's a very a deep rooted thing. The the one I there's there's a it's 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 kind of a cliche. But it, it really does kind of uh, illustrate the point well. In the West, you know, the saying is that the squeaky wheel gets yeah. the grease. You know, that the one that causes a problem is the one that's going to get the attention. In the Japanese equivalent of that saying is the nail which stands up is hammered down. Hmm. So the one that stand the one that's not the one that's out of place is the one that's going to receive you know negative attention, you know, so to speak. So. You know, it's it's again that again the the ideas of cooperation and coming away from uh, moving away from a, na a strong nationalist attitude into an internationalist attitude. That's what drives a lot of these. You know, I, I talked about uh, kind of obliquely about the the you know air quotes up to the microphone political mm -hmm. climate during wartime Japan. Um, that was one of the you know the the reversal from a very very strong nationalist identity to nationalism becoming almost like a four-letter word. You didn't talk about nationalism in Japan for a long time. It was seen as, you know, jingoistic. It was seen as dangerous. The idea of putting, you know, your interests above the rest of the world was not something you talked about at cocktail parties, you know? It was, it just, and so so a lot of their, a lot of it traditionally was about cooperation. And there, there's numerous films that that show this specifically, whether it's just kind of an oblique reference to the United Nations and Japan being a part of that. And, and uh, you know, Japan after after the you know, after World War Two, they were really 
there was a big push to be seen as we're we're a team player in the international community. We are here to help and we're here to support everybody and, and we don't want to cause any problems. So they, they often use the U.N., in genre films as, as an example of this with, with Japan, not being the ones in charge, solving all the problems but being the one who were there to help and, and, you know, offer solutions and, you know, do, you know, be, be a team player. So that, you know, that we, we see that with, you know, films, uh, earlier films like, uh, non they're, they're Toho films, but they're not Godzilla films like the Mysterians and battle in outer space, which are these alien invasion movies. And they all involve the UN, uh, but even even movies uh, in the Heisei era, all throughout the, um, the the sequels to Godzilla 1985, there is a group called the UNGCC, the United Nations Godzilla Countermeasures Center. And so it's uh, the the UN is front and center in all of these movies. And Japan is obviously since Godzilla hangs out in Japan, they're a big part of it. But it's still a, a whole global group to show that, yes, we are part of the international community and we believe in cooperation, everyone working together rather than, you know, fighting each other. So, well, and there's, there's something in that in the, um, so in the, the original Godzilla and then Godzilla King of the Monsters are both available. If you have HBO max, because they were both, um, released, uh, I believe by the courtesy of the criterion collection. And, uh, so that's what I yes. ended up watching. And, um, I, I really, I really enjoyed both. But I, I especially did enjoy because I had never seen the original 1954 Japanese version, mm-hmm. and um, I, I enjoyed yes. the whole aspect of it, which is you know the monsters attacking the coast, he's attacking Tokyo, etc. And um, the one scientist who is, I think it's Akihiko, Dr. Yeah. Serizawa. Um, it's played by Akihiko yeah, yeah, Harada. Sorry, I was, I'm, I'm looking Arizawa, at the. I was, yeah. I was reading the actor's name, not the uh, not the character's name off IMDb. Mm-hmm. He's the one who who has this. He has the weapon. Like it's it's a it, it's yes. called the Oxygen Destroyer, as you mentioned. It's basically a. It's not a Deus Ex Machina because it's it's the weapon that they know that they have and 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 he knows he has and, um. But he makes this sacrifice to do it. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, I'm the only, somebody has to stay behind to blow the, to blow the place up as, after everybody goes, which is a very common yeah. action, science fiction, war movie. I mean, we see how many times have we seen that trope, right? You know? Yeah. Um, but it does kind of speak mm-hmm. to what you were just talking about, about like, you know, um, he has a device that could very well bring him notoriety, fame, whatever he, but he, he makes the self, he makes the sacrifice, the selfless sacrifice to save his fellow countrymen. And and even more so in the case of uh, Serizawa, you know, so Serizawa wears an eye patch and it's never obliquely stated, but it's clearly implied that he was wounded during the war, given his age and given when when the film takes place. So here and, and so and, and his rival for Emiko's affections, Ogata, similarly, was a, was clearly a sailor who is now running a salvage. He's like merchant marine now, but he was also a sailor. So these, these, these people are all the right age. You know, they, they all know the score. And so for Serizawa to basically accidentally discover micro oxygen and then create the oxygen destroyer, this potential weapon that could be, um, you know, worse than an atomic bomb. And it's, it's potential to, to, uh, to, to cause suffering and death, mm-hmm. you know, so he understands what it, because he's seen war. Mm-hmm. So he understands that as soon as this is out there, that's what's going to happen because the same thing happened to atomic energy. 
that as you know going back to the day the earth stood still you know billy says uh he says atomic energy i thought that was only for bombs so so he understands it all too well but at the same time you know they they know that what's been unleashed that they have to do something that you can't you can't simply allow suffering to happen so it, it you know serizawa makes this this great like you say this great sacrifice and even as again even as a kid it's always struck me that you know, for for the betterment of literally not just this country, but all mankind to keep the concept of the oxygen destroyer from from reaching, uh, you know, anywhere else in the world from anyone, anyone ever dying from it, from except him, that he makes that sacrifice. The only people who were killed by the oxygen destroyer were Godzilla and Sarazawa. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so it's it, it, it's really, you know, this idea of that in the grand scheme of it, if it means saving you know countless the suffering of countless others what's my life you know what what is what is my sacrifice for something that i created you know whether i meant to do it or not it's still it's on me and and it's it's that personal responsibility for the world which is the opposite of what we saw in day the earth stood still right whereas i don't care about the rest of the world sarazawa cares so much he's willing willing to sacrifice himself And I and I and I've also again that this is I have such affection for this when it's him and Ogata that go down to uh, deploy the oxygen destroyer with Godzilla and Sarazawa cuts his line and Ogata is screaming for him to get back up. And there's nothing they can do because he's cut all his line. And the scene of them pulling up the lines and they pull up the two cut lines and the two the the guys on the 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 crew on the ship just kind of look at each other and they know, you know, and it and this gets back into. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen different interpretations of this. I saw one that was suggesting that uh, Sarazawa was committing seppuku for the dishonor of creating such a weapon. And I can understand that, but I, I've never really subscribed to that theory. I, I think it's it's a sacrifice for it's not to redeem himself because he didn't set out to create a weapon. It's to, you know, it, it's for the betterment of the world that he's willing to sacrifice this, which is a very... Again, for it, it's not a it, it, it's not an uncommon thing for the hero to make the sacrifice. But I think it's interesting that it's it's not just to save Emiko, you know, the, the woman who was his arranged bride who has, uh, you know, essentially spurned him. I mean, she's not she's not mean spirited about it. She you know, they she and Ogata are, are a thing. It's not that she uh, hates uh, Sarazawa. It's just he's not who she loves, you know, but not just to save Emiko or to save his buddies, it's it's to save the whole world. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's and and you know the thing again, and especially when you look at at Godzilla himself, at at Goji himself in, in this movie, where um you know what's interesting is that um I've something that I've seen many times and I've long subscribed to, is that when you have a country that at this point a lot of the buildings are still constructed of wood, mm-hmm. a creature that can breathe intense atomic heat and burn things to the ground. We see the image of Tokyo literally on fire was still a very real fear for a lot of people. And, you know, the, and of course the, the, the traditional, um, you know, Asian idea of a, of a dragon coming from the sea, uh, which is, you know, that, I mean, that, that, that transcends that's culture everywhere, right? It's it's a monster from the sea dragon. And you get that sense of a, it's almost like a spiritual reaction to it with the villagers in the fishing community at, at the mm-hmm. toward like you know toward the to the beginning or sometime in the first act of the movie where they're you know yeah. they're 
they're almost like talking about sacrifice and stuff like that. So then, you know that, yeah. So that it, so they are they're pulling from that tradition as well. Uh, yeah, a, a reference also to King mm-hmm. Kong. There's so uh, so Eji Tsuburaya was a big fan of King Kong, and uh, and so the idea of the natives on Odo Island worshiping Godzilla as a monster god that comes that is, that is a direct uh, reference to yeah. uh, Skull Island. Yeah, yeah. It is King Kong. Um, yeah. The the other thing that I noticed too, and granted, this was even the uh, the the American version, I believe, was uh, I guess I guess the, the Toho had some control over it, but there's nothing. There's a lot of cooperation between you know uh, Raymond Burr's character uh, Steve Martin <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, between Martin and and the Japanese, and there's a lot of respect that he as a character has for the people around him in Japan as opposed to Mm -hmm. uh, very often you have that you know it's almost a cliche by now that the American character in a foreign film or the American character in a in a setting where most of the people are not American tends to be the most arrogant guy in the room and we don't necessarily get that out of Mm -hmm. out of uh, out of Burr's performance Um, I know he is I I know in part he's there to basically explain what's going on to us uh, because he's but he's a reporter so it you know it, it works um, it works in some places. There are some places where it is a little awkward, where the editing is so much of the. I'm obviously in a sound stage in Hollywood, and you know, because right. especially because yeah. the the transfer to blue, or the, it's a transfer to it was streaming, yes. was not particularly good. So the footage from Godzilla in some places looks older and grainier than than what was what was shot of Burr, but. I don't know. I let that, you know, I give that, uh, you know, I gave that a pass after like the first 15 minutes of the movie because I was engaged in right. what I was yeah, seeing, seeing I mean, what they were going to do it this time. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard technically to, to really fault it when it's like they had no idea mm-hmm. of HD transfer in, you know, oh, yeah. 1956 when they were oh, shooting yeah. this. So and, and 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 the thing is, is that there's a lot of aspects of that, that localization where uh, Terry Morse uh, directed the uh, was a. Workman director for uh, a lot of places out in Hollywood, but uh, for Embassy uh-huh. Pictures that directed those insert shots, and they do some really great matching. There's a couple of bits at the beginning where he's talking with Emiko in the hospital, and they yeah. do matching with with what Emiko is wearing in the Japanese footage, and they they keep the action the action uh, excuse me the axis of action always easy for me to say, and they they really stick to that axis so that we can. We, it looks like we Wicked was shot, and she was actually talking to him. And there's a couple of scenes with uh, Dr. Yamane. That's the same way. Uh, but yeah, the, of all of the localizations, it's funny because the two with Raymond Burr, one of the localizations is far and away the best, and then one of them's a little rough, uh, the localization aspect of it, uh, which is Godzilla 1985. Yeah. But uh, it's but your the uh, the use of Burr in that is almost like a Greek chorus. Mm is is so nice because again it you're like you say he he's respectful he's not he's not telling japanese characters what to do he's asking questions as the reporter that makes sense for him and it helps that in gojira there is a minor reporter character who burr essentially replaces in certain scenes so you get that advantage of there being uh you know, if you need somebody to, to you know, listen and, and get to, you know, listen to someone else talk and then tell us what they're saying, that kind yeah. of thing. So, and, and from what I gather, just reading again, just doing some background on this, um, that Burr was really proud of his role in the original movie. So 
he was very happy to reprise it when they when they did eighty five. Mm-hmm. Um, eighty five was uh, I enjoyed it, but I didn't find it as entertaining as um, you know as that original movie. Um, what and you know you have more experience with it than I do. What is the what is the message being sent in eighty five? Aside from like the whole kind of soft reboot they were doing with the continuity sake. Yeah. So the thing is, is that so the so Return of Godzilla or Godzilla eighty four. It, it's here's the, the the movie was released in Japan as just uh-huh. Gojira, just like the original. It's in Toho's international title for it is Return of Godzilla. So if we're talking about the Japanese film in America, Toho would like us to call it Return of Godzilla. So it's it's all very confusing, <laughs> and it doesn't help that it doesn't help that we're all Americans trying to say yeah, Japanese words, too. which which is tough because it's um, you know it's it's funny because it goes it it's it's a the two languages are so different that it makes it tough both ways. Japanese only has about twenty percent of the sounds that English has. You know, think about all the different sounds that you make in English. Japanese has a lot less, and so a lot of it is. Um, uh, inflection and um, emphasis, whereas so it's tough for an American speaker to try and learn Japanese because everything starts sounding the same a lot of the times. Whereas for its exact opposite, for a Japanese speaker, there's so many sounds in English that and and some of them they're very difficult for them to pronounce just because of like a like a RL confusion or hard D at the end of a word that. That it's like okay, it, it becomes tough for them because like I don't even know how to say that, you know, let, let alone what it means. But <laughs> so, so in '84, you know, the, the world had changed, and it was getting Godzilla back to his original roots in the story of an allegory for the the dangers of, of unchecked uh, use of, of nuclear power and the use of technology as a weapon. And but since the the world had changed, and their attitude was was changing a little bit too, so. Kind of the the main crux politically of the story is that so Godzilla appears in the coast of Japan. He destroys a Soviet nuclear submarine. Then he surfaces in Japan and absorbs the energy out of a nuclear reactor, which is a great shot of him actually pulling the reactor out of the plant, which is crazy. you know, but uh, so so immediately now you have a legitimate nuclear threat. You've literally had a nuclear sub sunk, and you have the you know the, this this Godzilla, and so you know you've got a conflict now where Japan, as I said, is in the middle because on one side you have the United States that's saying you must allow us to use nuclear weapons on Godzilla, and then you have on the other side the Soviet Union saying the same thing, and it's up to the prime minister. And remember what we talked about as far as cooperation and international community. And he says no to both the United States and the Soviet Union in 1984, 1985, depending on, you know, which version. And it's like that that's unheard of to to outright say, no, we will not break the three principles, even given the fact that we are facing annihilation again, because nothing we have. I mean, the Super X which is uh, the flying tank. It's like, this is not up to the task. You know, that becomes very clear. The, the, there's several super X's in the Heisei uh, films, and uh, only one of them survives to the end of the movie. 
So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, so, so that, that is, that to me is really the, the really great thing about this movie is the idea that no, what, you know, it's like, yes, we are part of the international community, but it's this return a little bit of nationalism and what, what they need, what, what, what their principles are and that they'll stick to them. And that, yes, we want to do right by you. We want to do right by the international community, but we have our principles and they mean so much to us that we're willing to face whatever crisis comes, but we still won't break those principles. You know, they, they say, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, the character is what you do when nobody's looking. Well, and then, the, you know, the, the principles are what you do and you won't break. Right. So that that's that's always stuck out to me, especially the Japanese version. The American version has a couple of changes in it, which kind of, to me, hurt the film a little bit. We talked about this a little bit off air. So there is a a, a subplot in this that as Godzilla is making his way into Tokyo, that the Soviets surreptitiously put a a covert launch uh, facility in a cargo ship in Tokyo Bay. And they have all the ability to launch a, a ICBM from this cargo ship. And the, the, the Soviet agents, they're just, you know, it's like, look, we don't have any orders. We just sit here, you know, that they're more than content just to sit there and wait. Um, and then during Godzilla's rampage, the ship ends up getting damaged. And by accident, they're now locked. Now they, they, there's there's in a big red alert. So in the original version in 19 in, in Return of Godzilla, because of the damage done to the ship, a missile launch is initiated by accident. He's, and the Soviet agent is fighting, doing everything he can to force his way in and to stop the launch. And he can't do it. And the missile is the ICBM is launched. The American version re-edits this so that the ship is damaged. And then the agent, without receiving any orders, forces the missile to launch, goes and literally pushes the button. New World Cinema filmed a scene of a hand reaching out towards a big red button and it getting pushed to launch the ICBM. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, to me, the way that I've always looked at this, in Japan, you can play that because in Japan, it's okay to say that, you know, I, it always makes me think of that song by Sting. I hope the Russians love their yeah. children, too. You know, that, no, he doesn't want to launch the missile because that's the last thing he wants, because this guy knows what the score is. Whereas New Line being, again, an American company in 1985, instead they make the Soviets the outright villains by having the guy you know, fall over doing everything he can to launch which, the missile. Which is not unheard of, of course, because this is this is about, what, a year after Red Dawn and, and such. But, but there were also exactly. movies about yeah. nuclear Armageddon, like The Day After, where they went out of their way to make sure that um, it was like, uh, and even like the Terminator, where um, neither side neither side was responsible for what happened. Like with the Terminator, Skynet's the one that launches, knowing that Skynet, the thing is yeah. going to launch, and therefore you know because Skynet wants to destroy humanity, and you know um, in in the day after they they just kind of took they took pains to make sure that that it's almost like everything got launched at once. You know that no side mm-hmm. fired first or something, and it was they were very, very you know even keeled on, on politicizing it. Um, plus, the entire point of that movie was to show what would happen if something had actually dropped, no matter you know no matter what. Yeah. But yeah, so this is kind of interesting that you know they would they would go that route because um, like I said, but not it's not like Russians weren't villains in other movies like you know we've talked about Rambo before right. and stuff. Um, right. 
or even uh, right around the same time with Rocky Four in a more uh, more limited capacity, but the same idea, right? That everything the Soviets do, they're they're underhanded, they're lying, they're cheaters. You know, and and but it but it's only the people up top, you know, the the actual people of the Soviet Union yes. are good people that just need someone to they need the American way to set them free. It's all those those part those party politic mm. guys at the top that are that are the problem. And uh, that but, was, yeah. but that was a message that I, you know, I don't know you. I remember getting that message essentially in school when we were kids. That it was never the, the mm-hmm. Russian, you know, which which is kind of a change from this era of the Cold War. There still was that, especially under Stalin, there still was that idea of they're all commie bastards, and you know they're all you know they're mm-hmm. all out to get you. It doesn't matter whether it's you know uh, Mikhail in second grade and you know in a school in Moscow or 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 Joseph Stalin or Nikita Khrushchev. It softens a little toward the end of the 1950s, of course, and lasts all of like you know a split second before uh, Francis Gary Powers is shot down <laughs> and stuff. Right. But you know, so, but you know, and and it is it is interesting to watch the politics and the relationship between the United States and Soviet Union go almost like on a on a curve there, you know, where where there because because yeah. it, it's not it's not all intense for 40 or 50 years. There are those periods of détente and there are those periods of of easing of tensions and a little bit of, of you know, of, of a hint that we could get along and there's something in the way and we have to get over it. Right. Um, but no, it's interesting to see yeah. that because this wasn't the end of this. was If this was filmed in 84, it's right before Reagan starts his second term, which is in terms of the approach to, you know, especially with Gorbachev in power, you know, the, the, the dynamic shifts a little bit toward being a little more welcoming than the evil empire that we saw in the first half of the 80s. Um, no, yes, before yes. The, yeah, go ahead. I was to say the, the other interesting, well, the other interesting thing about that is that it gets that scene. Either way, that in either version, the end result of that scene gets back to the the theme mm-hmm. again. So, the 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 ICBM, whether intentional or otherwise, is launched. The Americans launch a cruise missile to intercept it. It intercepts the cruise missile above Japan, creates an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, as any nuclear explosion would do, which in the Americanization they very thoughtfully explain for us and gives Dream and Burr a chance to deadpan again because, you know, when, when in doubt, deadpan. But it's – so Godzilla is, before this is down, okay? And it's, it's, the new, it's the explosion and the release of nuclear material that revives him. So the implication is pretty straightforward. Even if you're even if you're using a nuclear weapon in a defensive capability, like the like the American missile is used in this film, it has terrible repercussions because that revives Godzilla, and he is alive again to continue his rampage and hurt innocent people. So even if you're saying, "Look, we're just doing this as a deterrent," the message is pretty clear from. Uh, Kawakita and the, the rest of the crew here at Toho that no, even if you're doing this for the, for a deterrence, the potential for, um, you know, the, the, this, for put, using this technology for the wrong reasons is going to. And so that it's, it's now admittedly not too long after that, Godzilla is lured into a volcano and stays, uh, dormant for four years until the next film. But it's it's still right there, you know. It's like even though yes, you you stopped a the you, know, you used a you used the very thing that you were trying to stop in order to save the day, but you didn't save the day. You just you've you've still unleashed something out into the world. Yeah, you know. Yeah. 
and uh, you know, and just kind of kind of wrap it up. The, this idea of and a bookend of you know early in the Cold War and late in the Cold War, because after the 1980s, the nuclear holocaust genre really, with the exception of the Terminator films, is mm-hmm. not as prevalent. Um, you know, the Terminator right. to Judgment Day um, being the biggest one, Rise of the Machines, which I think is a bit underrated, but I think that's because I love the ending of the movie so much. But you know, but 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 we do we get into, but of course the '90s, as we were saying a little earlier, is there's so many disaster films in the '90s. It's almost like the '70s all over again with with you know. Uh, well, you know how things things yeah, go in twenty year do. cycles, right? Just like the the seven yeah the seventies were in love with the fifties, the eighties were in love with the sixties, and then the nineties yeah. were in love with the seventies. Uh, the one the one that the one that astounded me, and and I, I don't know if you were um, you you might have been a little slightly demographic wise, but when I was in high school, all the girls loved Greece, and it's like they loved Greece because Greece was a night hunting from the seventies. But Greece was a throwback to that the '50s. Huge. I'm like, this is like some kind of Inception level stuff here for yeah, levels remember, of separation. I remember singing a lot of those songs at like music class in like elementary school for a little while. There was like a '50s thing in the, in the late '80s. Um, that, that got rerun on VH1 endlessly in the '90s too. So, oh yeah. Um, but the thing, yeah. the, but the, but the, if, if we're looking at kind of like. Going out from there, at least in the American cinema side of the of the, you don't know what your what the power that you have in your hands to kind of bring it over to a genre. You have some of the great classic science fiction movies of the late '60s and the uh, and the 1970s um, in there, um, and, and you know, and to a certain extent, more stuff from the '50s. Um, there's Twilight Zone episodes that we can point to here and there that are that are warnings for any aspect of the cold war you know um and right but then you have of course um spoiler alert the end of the planet of the apes uh <laughs> you know which really is it's just and, it, and it's a great reveal and even though we all know like i knew the reveal of that movie before i saw the whole movie because it's one of the, it is one of the great moments in you know, in, in science fiction cinema, but even then it's yeah. still a great movie. Uh, but then you have, oh, yeah. you have movies like the China syndrome and, um, mm-hmm. Logan's run to a certain extent, you know, has a little bit of that, you know, a, a lot of dystopian science fiction films have some sort of have on some level. We did this to ourselves, like that sort of message, even, right. even like a movie I was talking about recently, Star Trek for the voyage home, which is this, lighthearted tale mm-hmm. where they're getting whales to stop the destruction of the earth there is a we'd, we would do this to ourselves kind of thought in there because we'd hunted the stupid things to extinction and they're not there when the probe shows right. up and it's a motif in science fiction of the of the we we are trying to harness power which we, we don't understand the, the we really don't understand exactly what we're doing with this we really are not taking right. to it. Or, but like you said, with the scientists in the day of the earth and still, they're the ones willing to find out what exactly this is. And they're willing to have the patience. But then you of course have the, um, the politicians and the politicians are all selfishly mo- motivated. Right. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I, I do want to just mention, because we talked about this with mm-hmm. Godzilla 85, that the idea that 
Japan was in the middle. Going back into earlier in the Cold War, in the Showa period, so 1954 to 1975, I'm, I just I just was jotting down some thoughts, and you know, I I, I came up with what I thought. And I, I mentioned this to you off air. Were kind of the four big Cold War themes for mm-hmm. Toho's um, genre output for the Showa period, or actually just in general. And so the four I came up with were capitalism, communism, cooperation, and nationalism. So those are kind of on, you know, you can put those on an axis where each corner is opposed to the other corner. And so what's very interesting to me is that just as much as communism was an implied threat or in a couple of cases an outright threat in the Japanese science fiction films of that era, capitalism was too. So, again, thinking about Japan after the war, the booming economy, the economy starting up because suddenly they're now opened up to the rest of the world and they're they're selling stuff to the rest of the world that they weren't doing in large numbers before the war. And now capitalism, unchecked greed, is now seen as a modern social ill. Um, Famously, in uh, the two in Mothra and Mothra versus Godzilla from 61 and 64 60 or 61. I always forget Mothra is 60 or 61. But the first Mothra and the Mothra versus Godzilla both deal directly with capitalists as the villains in those films. Um, In Mothra, the twin fairies, the cosmos, are kidnapped from Infant Island and put on display in a nightclub. You know, so it's not just it's it's not just uh, capitalism, but it's disrespecting the natural world to make money, which is, you know, that that's that's like the epitome of a very big right there as well. Yes, yes, it is. Especially when Mothra shows up to go rescue them and yeah. tears the thing apart. It's it's kind of like Gorgo. It's kind of like uh, Tarzan's New York Adventures. A lot going on there. But but again, but then in the and then in Mothra versus Godzilla, which is pretty much a sequel to uh, to Mothra, also the film that introduced the concept of the shared monster universe. Um, the Mothra's egg washes up on shore after a typhoon, and so a bunch of developers. One group, the group that found it, claims that they own it because of maritime salvage laws. They sell it to a developer uh, who then puts an incubator around it and plans to plans to charge people money to go see the egg. And it's and and no, and so that's when the the cosmos come and they say you must return the egg, you must return the egg. So so um, so we see capitalism. And what's great, there, there's a great scene in Martha versus Godzilla where the two businessmen, so. Godzilla has, you know, has has beaten back um, the the adult Mothra, and he's just on a rampage. And they are they have double crossed each other. They are turning on each other, actively fighting over the money. And they're so busy fighting over the money that both of them are killed when Godzilla collapses the building that they're in. One of my proud moments as a as a parent is my my sec my my younger boy, who when I think when he was like six or seven was watching that movie, and he's watching this, and he stands up and points at me, he's like, you're going to get killed because you're fighting over money. And I was like, he gets it. Oh, my God, he gets it. It was so beautiful. And and I can see where you see that in, like, Jurassic Park, where the particularly really greedy people do get theirs. (laughs) So. Yeah, but but then on the other side of the coin – Right around those movies, so in, in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, which comes out the same year as Mothra vs. Godzilla, the main human plot is driven because a princess of a tiny nation in um, Southeast Asia 
is she is traveling to Japan on a diplomatic mission and she is under attack because of communist agents that want to kill her to turn the country mm -hmm. communist. And so the main villain is an assassin named Mal Ness, who is implied strongly to be a communist, uh, you know, an agent of the communist faction in this country. And then in uh, Ibra, Horror of the Deep, known better in this country as Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, a couple of years later, uh, the main group is an evil um, non-nationalist, non-national group called the Red Bamboo. And you call yourself the Red Bamboo. That sounds like a Red Japan Army type of situation. And so you've got, you know, an, another communist group set up on an island in the Pacific. Uh, I always describe that film as featuring, uh, you know, a crustacean, a condor, and communists. So... You know, so again, so communism a, a major threat, uh, as as well as capitalism. So I think it's interesting because you know, and rightly so, we're we're both American. We tend to look at it from an American's yeah. perspective and look at American film, which was the major driver for genre film in this era. So we look at it that way. Capitalism isn't really seen as much of a threat in this era in American film. Greed might be to an extent. But really, to me, it's not until really like Wall Street, mm -hmm. you know, that with Gordon Gecko, well, greed is good, that we see the villain extolling the benefits of, of capitalistic greed. Whereas, you know, given a different perspective, an Eastern perspective, you can see that, you know, again, and this goes with the idea of international cooperation, you know, a, a country that was never, never communist, but was a bit more, um, collectivist. I don't know if that's the, the I right word. I mean, they, with, they, yeah. they, they, yeah, they 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 mean uh, they're they're still a um, you know a uh, a, a minister what what uh, what a they have it they have an emperor and they have a prime minister and they have a legislature so it, yeah a parliamentary that was the word I couldn't think they have a parliamentary system of government so that more aligns with the West but their the general cultural attitude was more collective which would seem to suggest more of an eastern type of you know uh, you know a more red type of situation so you know it puts them in a weird spot and and what it means as a viewer is that you do get exposed to this different sort of take than you got if you were only watching western film and you know it it's and i i really am happy that these films you mentioned the criterion collection with all the showa films now available from criterion and on and a lot of the films still available for streaming we're a lot of these films are getting you know looked at again from a more critical light not just oh yeah i remember that that was great when you know uh, when kong and godzilla destroy a tommy castle that's the greatest thing ever and that is yeah. don't get me wrong but now looking at more of the stories and the idea that these were you know, just like in America, genre film reflects the the hopes and fears of the the people making them at the time, and they more than maybe big budget film reflect the hopes and fears of the people watching yeah. them. Yeah, you and, know, uh, and the the Criterion Collection in, in just in itself is uh, is great with the transfer and the, and the care they put into to packing these films because they've got. Um, I've watched a, cur a couple of uh, like I watched Throne of Blood recently. Um, you know, a couple mm. of Kurosawa films. Uh, but the, the thing you were talking about, how like, you know, yeah, capitalism does not come in as a great villain or, or in, in that as the, as the fundamental flaw of people until like much later, um, it, you know, into the eighties and into the nineties, uh, you know, even though there here and there, there are these sort of, uh, maybe the side characters who are trying to, you know, trying to get rich quick scheme or whatever, or, but the, mm. uh, but, but you're right. A lot of American genre films, um, the, the hubris of, Humanity, which and that goes back, that goes back to Shelley and Frankenstein. I mean, it's it's, it's right. a fundamental, yeah. fatal flaw of characters in this genre. But it's it, that is that is the one that, that American 
sci-fi does tend to of this of this type does tend to stick to, yeah. which we, you see it in a lot of the the dystopian and the disaster movies and stuff where mm-hmm. they are clearly Absolutely. you know somebody somebody took it too far. Nope. Yeah, I mean the, the the where you do see some of the greed is in a different. You do see that greed as from a villain, you know, as as a capitalism as a as a villainous motivation. You do see it in some disaster mm-hmm. movies. I'm thinking like like the Towering Inferno, the idea of cutting corners to make money. But even that, you know, that's that's it, it's but you know that is to me capitalism, right? It's the idea of making yeah. money at all costs. You know, damn whatever whoever gets hurt in the process and all that. But that's not that's outside the realm of science yeah, fiction so, for the most also, part. That's you know, yeah, that's, it's also that, outside yeah. the realm of science fiction when they're applying principles or ideas or, or philosophies of international politics or, or comments on foreign policy or whatever it is to it. You know, whereas the Towering Inferno mm-hmm. is like, you know, it's it's just as, a, you know, like, or you think of like Poltergeist, for instance, you know, stuff like that, which is more horror than sci-fi. But at the same time, that's a more localized thing where you really feel like you can. Yeah. Um, that you can because because the people in the Towering Inferno and the, the family in Poltergeist are the everyman and everything. And like, you know, you still don't want the, you, know, you still we still resist authority despite the fact that they're making millions of money, but yeah. when they make millions of money off of us, but when you're, when you're extending it out to the, you know, to an ideal that's diametrically opposed to you, that's on the opposite end of that access, that access you, you hold up capitalism as, as a heroic or you mm-hmm. just ignore, you know, you just, you don't, you don't play it that way. But I like, right. I, 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 this was great. And, and, and I like how, um, are able to to frame this this dichotomy of like United States and Soviet Union and capitalism and communism in the terms of of a different type of science fiction than the you know or a different type of fiction than the than the paranoia type of stuff we were getting um, through the right. part of the decade. Mm-hmm. So before I let you go, um, why don't you tell everybody where uh, they can find you? Sure thing. Uh, so however you, whatever tool you use to listen to this episode, you can use that same tool to find all of my podcasts because I'm also on uh, Two True Freaks. My main show is Earth Destruction Directive, which is a Daikaiju podcast. You might have guessed I've got a, a little bit of a fandom for Daikaiju. Um, so we talk about all aspects, talk about films and comics and games and, and all sorts of stuff on that. So uh, please check that out. Uh, I also am the co-host of The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror along with my brother Jason, two true freaks OG Chris Honeywell, and the hair metal hero Chris Tyler. And that is a horror podcast, again, primarily horror film, but we do cover other uh, you know other genres, not other genres, but other mediums on, on occasion in there as well. And the other show that I co-host is Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there is a podcast about professional wrestling on the internet uh, that I co-host with my brother Jason and the hair metal hero. Uh, we primarily kind of look more backwards than forwards on that show uh, you know more retrospective than um, you know what happened this week on raw and what, what's going to happen next week on raw type of thing but um but if you like pro wrestling i think you'll enjoy that one so if any of those sound interesting please check them out i would All really right, well, appreciate thank it. you for coming on and uh oh thank you very much for having me always always a pleasure to talk to talk with you tom especially when we're talking about uh you know the intersections of of politics and pop culture because um you and i have it's it's very interesting we we have a lot of different perspectives but we have kind of a similar background mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and so uh so the way that the way that different things um spoke to us or didn't speak to us it always makes to me for fascinating yeah, conversation yeah i really i really do enjoy it and i really do enjoy the uh 
not, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I do enjoy the nuance that comes to these conversations between us because <laughs> it, I, I feel that they're very, way more constructive than um, a lot of what we see out there. So I, I really do appreciate that. Well, it's, it's like the Joker says in you know, Batman 89, right? You know, this is attractive. That is not. I've moved past all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be back in a moment to wrap things up. So stick around. And once again, I'd like to thank Luke for coming on. Be sure to check out his podcasts over at Two True Freaks. I'll be back toward the end of November, shifting my pop culture lens towards spy thrillers. I covered some John Le Carre in the first episode of this series, but this time around, I'm going to be covering the most famous international spy in pop culture history, James Bond. And I'll be joined for that one by Andrew Leyland. Until then, you can check out the show notes on the blog. And definitely, like I said, check out Luke's podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. And as always, thanks again for listening, and take care. It sure looks strange to me That then he came down to earth and he lit in a tree I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, don't eat me I heard him say, and I've always choked her up this has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this miniseries and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War. Rock and roll music through the horn in his head.